Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode two of the second age of the Crusaders and the subject is the German Crusade of 1197. Have you ever heard of this? I'd be surprised if you had, not least because it's sandwiched between two of the most famous crusades, the third and fourth. The third crusade, of course, is well known, mainly thanks to Hollywood because of the legend of Robin Hood, which took place while Richard the Lionheart was fighting Saladin and his evil brother John was usurping the throne back in England. And the Fourth Crusade is, of course, known to some extent because of the atrocities committed in the blood-curdling sack of Constantinople in 1204, which we'll cover quite soon. But the German Crusade of 1197 is almost unknown, I think. And it raises an interesting point because you don't hear that much about the Germans in the Crusades, and yet Germany was a major part of medieval Europe. Well, two reasons, I think, for that. The first is that it's true that the First Crusade was almost entirely composed of French Normans, so much so that the Arabs and Turks nearly always called the Crusaders Franks, which was the early medieval name for the French. And indeed, a lot of historians also call the Crusaders Franks. So the Germans missed out on the original establishment of the Crusader states, as, by the way, of course, also did the English. But the Germans were getting more involved in the Crusades in the late 12th century, And I think they could have played a very important role were it not for two pieces of simple bad luck. The first happened when the Third Crusade started off as being mainly German. You might remember from an earlier episode how the German Emperor Frederick Barbarossa led a large German army into Anatolia in 1190. This army was actually very effective and it even defeated the Seljuk Turks in Anatolia in two battles, which was no small achievement given how good the Turkish cavalry were. But then bad luck intervened. Frederick accidentally drowned in a bizarre incident when he fell from his horse into a river. And after that, the German army broke up and a large part of it simply went home. Now, in the last episode, we heard that only five years later, in 1195, Frederick Barbarossa's son, Henry VI, who had succeeded him as German emperor, was planning another major German offensive into the Holy Land. But yet again, bad luck would intervene. As you'll find out when I read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. Hope you enjoy it. In the year 1195, the German Emperor Henry VI decided to launch a major new crusade. Owing to his father, Frederick Barbarossa's untimely death, the German contribution to the Third Crusade had been pitiably ineffective. Henry was ambitious to make his empire an international reality, and his first task, as soon as he was firmly established in Europe, was to restore German prestige in the Holy Land, while he himself was making plans for a great expedition that would bring the whole Mediterranean under his control, he arranged for the early dispatch of a German expedition to sail straight to Syria. Archbishop Conrad of Mainz and Adolf, Count of Holstein, set out from Bari in Italy with a large company of German soldiers, derived mainly from the Rhineland and the Hohenstaufen duchies. The first contingents arrived at Acre in August. 
But Henry of Champagne, the uncrowned heir to the kingdom of Jerusalem and the main leader of the crusaders that were left in Palestine, did not welcome them gladly. He'd learned from experience of the folly of provoking an unnecessary war. His chief advisers were the local crusader lords and they were faithful to their family traditions which advised an understanding with the Muslims and a delicate diplomacy playing off the sons and brothers of Saladin against each other. The policy had actually been very successful and peace, which was so vital for the recovery of the Crusader Kingdom, had been maintained in spite of the provocation caused by a pirate emir based at Beirut called Usama, whom neither Al-Adil at Damascus nor Al-Aziz at Cairo could control. But the Germans had come determined to fight. Without stopping to consult the government of Aqbert, the first German arrivals marched straight into Muslim territory in Galilee. The invasion roused the Muslims. Al-Adil, to whom the land belonged, summoned his relatives to forget their quarrels and to join him. Hardly had the Germans crossed the frontier before there was news of Al-Adil's approach. Rumour exaggerated the size of his army and without waiting to meet it, the Germans fled in panic back to towards Acre, the knights deserting the infantry in their haste. It seemed likely that Aladil would march unopposed to Acre, but Henry, on the advice of Hugh of Tiberius, rushed up his own knights and such Italian soldiers as he could muster to reinforce the German infantry, who, braver than their knights, were ready now to stand firm. Aladil was not prepared to risk a pitched battle and was unwilling to waste his army. He swerved southward and instead marched on Jaffa, Jaffa was well fortified but its garrison was small. Henry decided to go to its aid and he rapidly gathered his own troops and also asked the Pisans if they would provide reinforcements. Then a very bizarre incident happened. On the 10th of September 1197, while his troops assembled in the palace courtyard and Henry was reviewing them from the window of an upper gallery, at that very moment envoys from the Pisan colony entered the room. Henry turned round to greet them, then, forgetting where he was, he stepped backwards through the open window. His court jester, who was a dwarf called Scarlet, was standing by him and grabbed at his clothes, trying to stop him falling, but Henry was a heavy man and Scarlet very light. They crashed together onto the pavement below and both of them were killed. The sudden death of Henry of Champagne threw the whole kingdom of Jerusalem into consternation. He had actually been very popular, though a man of no outstanding natural gifts. He had, by his tact, his perseverance, and his reliance on good advisers, proved himself a remarkably capable ruler, ready to learn from experience. He'd also played a useful part in ensuring the continuance of the kingdom, but the barons couldn't afford to waste time on grief. A new ruler must be found quickly to deal with the Saracen War and also the German Crusaders and all the regular problems of government. Henry's widow, Princess Isabella, was too utterly distraught by her sudden bereavement to take charge, but she was the pivotal figure as heiress of the royal line. Of her children by Henry, she'd had two little girls, Alice and Philippa, both of whom survived, her daughter by Conrad, Maria of Montferrat, 
known from her father's rank as La Marquise, was only five years old. It was clear that Isabella must remarry, but the barons, while acknowledging her position as heiress, considered it their business to choose her next husband. Unfortunately, they could not agree on a suitable candidate. Hugh of Tiberius and his friends proposed his brother Ralph. His family, the House of Falkenberg of Saint-Omer, was one of the most distinguished in the kingdom, but it was very poor. It had lost its lands in Galilee to the Muslims, and Ralph was also a younger son. It was widely felt that he lacked sufficient wealth and prestige. In particular, the military orders, the Templars and Hospitallers, opposed him. While the debate went on, news came that Jaffa had fallen to the Muslims without a struggle. The Duke of Brabant had set out to rescue it, but now he turned back to Acre and took charge of the government. A few days later, on the 20th of September, Conrad of Mainz and the German crusader leaders arrived from Cyprus. Conrad, as a prelate of the Western Empire and confidant of the emperor and friend as well as the new Pope Innocent III, was a man of immense authority and power. When he suggested that the throne of the Kingdom of Jerusalem should be offered to King Amalric of Cyprus, there was no opposition, except from the patriarch Imar the monk, whose own clergy would not support him. However, it did seem an excellent choice. Amalric's first wife, Esquiva of Ibelin, had recently died. He was free to marry Isabella. His election pleased the Pope, to whom it seemed wise to combine the Latin East under one chief. But the Chancellor Conrad's motive was more subtle. Amalric owed his Cypriot crown to the Emperor Henry VI, whose vassal he had become. As King of Jerusalem, would he not therefore bring his new kingdom under the rule of the Germans. Amalric himself hesitated a little. It was not until January 1198 that he came to Acre. On his arrival, he was married to Princess Isabella, and a few days later, the patriarch crowned them king and queen of Jerusalem. The union of the crowns was not to be as complete as the Pope or the Germans had hoped. Amalric made it clear from the outset that the two kingdoms, Jerusalem and Cyprus, were to be administered separately and that no Cypriot money was to be spent on the defence of the mainland. He himself was only a personal link between them. Cyprus was a hereditary kingdom, and his heir there was his son Hugh. In the Kingdom of Jerusalem, hereditary right was admitted by public sentiment, but the High Court preserved its claim to elect to the throne. There, Amalric owed his position to his wife. If he died, she might remarry, and the new husband be accepted as king. And her heir was her daughter, Maria of Montferrat. Even if she bore Amalric a son, it was doubtful whether the child of a fourth marriage could claim precedence over a child of the second. But in fact, their only children were two daughters, Sibylla and Melisande. Though he regarded himself as little more than regent, Amalric was an able and active ruler. He persuaded the High Court to join him in a revision of the constitution in order that the royal rights should be clearly defined. In particular, he made a point of consulting Ralph of Tiberius, his rival for the throne, whom we are told he esteemed but didn't like. Ralph was celebrated for his legal knowledge and it was natural that he should be asked to edit the Livre au Roi as the new edition of the laws was called. But Amalric feared that Ralph's learning might be used against him in March 1198 when the court was riding through the orchards round Tyre. Four German horsemen galloped up to the king and fell on him. He was rescued without serious hurt and his assailants refused to say on whose behalf they were acting but Amalric announced that 
that Ralph was guilty and sentenced him to banishment. Ralph, as was his right, demanded trial by his peers, and John of Evelyn, the Queen's half-brother, persuaded the King that he must submit the case to the High Court, which found that the King had done wrong in banishing Ralph without a hearing. The matter was only resolved when, probably owing to the tactful intervention of John of Evelyn, Ralph himself announced that as he had lost the King's goodwill, he would go into voluntary exile and retired to Tripoli. The episode had shown the barons that the king couldn't be opposed with impunity, but it had shown the king that he must abide by the constitution. Meanwhile, his foreign policy was vigorous and flexible. In October 1197, before he'd accepted the throne, he'd helped Henry of Brabant to take advantage of the Muslim concentration at Jaffa by sending an expedition composed of the German crusaders under Henry of Brabant's leadership to recover Sidon and Beirut. Sidon had already been demolished by the Muslims who thought that they couldn't hold it. When the Christians arrived there, they found the town a mass of ruins. The pirate Emir Usama, who was based at Beirut, finding that Al-Adil wasn't sending him any help, decided that he would destroy the rest of his town. But he started too late. When Henry of Brabant and the German troops came up, they found the walls dismantled so that they could easily enter them, but the bulk of the town was actually intact and soon repaired. Beirut was given as a fief to the Queen's half-brother John of Ebelin. With Jebel also restored to the Crusaders, the Kingdom of Jerusalem once again was linked with the county of Tripoli. Encouraged by their success at Beirut, the German Crusaders, with the Archbishop at their head, planned next to march on Jerusalem itself. The Crusader barons in Syria didn't welcome this at all. They hoped to restore peace with Al-Adil on the basis of ceding Jaffa while they kept Beirut and they tried to dissuade the Germans from advancing, but in November 1197, the Germans entered Galilee and laid siege to the great fortress of Toron. So vigorous was their first assault that the Muslim garrison soon offered to abandon the castle, with 500 Christian prisoners lying in its dungeons, if the defenders could be assured of their lives and personal possessions. But the Archbishop Conrad insisted on an unconditional surrender, and the Crusader barons, eager to make friends with Al-Adil and fearing that a massacre might provoke a Muslim jihad, sent messengers to warn the Sultan that the Germans were not likely to take prisoners. The defence continued with renewed vigour and Al-Adil persuaded his nephew Al-Aziz to send an army from Egypt to deal with the German invaders. Then a catastrophe struck the Germans. News arrived that the Emperor Henry VI had died at Messina in Sicily. He'd been preparing a huge army to follow up on what was just a small German expeditionary force that was fighting in the Holy Land. Henry was only 31 years old, and his death was totally unexpected and either due to poison or malaria. The result was a civil war in Germany that lasted nearly 20 years. This was the second piece of bad luck to afflict the Germans after Frederick Barbarossa had accidentally drowned on the Third Crusade. For the German crusaders fighting in the Holy Land, this was the end. The Archbishop Conrad and the German knights immediately decided to abandon the siege of Turon and to return home. But on the 2nd of February 1198, news arrived that the Egyptian army was approaching from the south. The German rank and file was ready to do battle when suddenly a rumour went around that the Chancellor and the great lords had fled. There was a general panic. The whole army never paused in its flight until it had reached the safety of Tyre. 
A few days later, it began to embark on its return journey to Europe. The whole German crusade had been a fiasco and had done nothing to restore German prestige. It had, however, helped to recover Beirut for the crusaders and it created a permanent institution in the form of the Teutonic Knights that would later play a major part in the Baltic Crusades. As soon as the German crusaders had gone, Amalric opened negotiations with Al-Adil. Al-Aziz had returned quickly to Egypt with his army, and Al-Adil, eager to secure the whole Ayubite inheritance of Saladin's, had no wish to quarrel with the crusaders. On the 1st of July 1198, a treaty was signed, leaving him in possession of Jaffa and the Franks in possession of Jebel and Beirut, and dividing Sidon between them. It was to last for five years, and the settlement proved useful to Al-Adil for it left him free on Al-Aziz's death in November to intervene in Egypt and annex the late Sultan's lands. His increased power made Amalric all the more determined to keep the peace with him, but it wasn't always easy to keep the peace. At the end of 1202, a Flemish squadron put in at Acre. It had sailed round past Gibraltar under the Castellan of Bruges, John of Nestle. A few days later, a handful of knights arrived in ships from Marseille under Bishop Walter of Autun and the Count of Ferez. Like all newcomers to the Holy Land, the French knights were determined to go out at once to fight for the cross. They were horrified when King Amalric urged them to wait in patience. Reynald of Dompierre insulted the king to his face as a coward, and as self-appointed leader, he persuaded his knights to take service under Beaumont of Tripoli instead. They set out to join him at Antioch and pass safely through the county of Tripoli, but Jabala and Latakia were still in Muslim hands. The emir of Jabala was a peaceful man on excellent terms with his Christian neighbours. He offered the travellers hospitality, but warned them that to pass safely through the territory of Latakia, they must obtain a safe conduct from his ruler, Azazia of Aleppo. He offered to write himself to the sultan, who would have granted the request, for he was interested in keeping the peace. But Reynald and his friends could not wait. They pressed on past Latakia, whose emir, thinking to do his Muslim duty, lured them into an ambush and captured most of them and massacred the rest. Amalric himself allowed occasional raids against Muslims when an emir established himself near Sidon and began to raid the Christian coasts and Al-Adil offered no redress. Amalric retaliated by sending out ships to intercept and capture a rich Egyptian convoy sailing to Latakia and leading a raid into Galilee. Al-Adil, although he marched to meet him, refused to give battle, nor did he react violently when the Christian fleet sailed to the Nile Delta and up the river past Rosette to sack the little town of Fuwa. About the same time, the Hospitallers from Crac de Chevalier carried out raids without any lasting success against Hama, the emirate of Aladil's great-nephew Al-Mansur. In September 1204, another peace treaty, this time to last for six years, was concluded between Amalric and Aladil. It seems that the initiative came from Amalric, but Aladil, on his side, was anxious to end the fighting. He may have been concerned by the Christian superiority in sea power, and he was certainly aware 
aware that his empire would gain by the resumption of settled trade along the Syrian coast. He was therefore not only ready to abandon Beirut and Sidon to Amalric, but also ceded Jaffa to him and Ramla. For Amalric, these terms were surprisingly good, but he wasn't able to enjoy his enhanced prestige for long, since on the 1st of April 1205, after a short illness, he died at Acre, aged little more than 50. Amalric II was not a great king, but like his predecessor Henry, he'd learned from experience a political wisdom that was very valuable to this poor and precarious kingdom, for the kingdom of Jerusalem had become far more precarious than ever before due to an extraordinary event that had occurred the year before in 1204. This was the assault by the Fourth Crusade on the Empire of Byzantium. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to leave any ratings or reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts, you'd be doing me a really massive favour. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about the Fourth Crusade and its extraordinary and treacherous attack on the Byzantine Empire.